uh, Turner gave us that when he when I when I came to town, he uh, introduced me as the general manager, uh, as well as the color analyst on the games. He said I was like buying a suit with two pair of pants. And about a week later, I was in the stadium club having lunch with a member of the Braves front office who was in charge of all the radio broadcasts. And Turner walked through and he said to the guy I was sitting there, didn't even acknowledge me. He said to the guy, so how are things going with the Braves uh, in the radio? And the guy told him, he said, and the Hawks. And he says, well, they got this and that going on. They got this sold and that. And he says, and the Cougars. And the guy said, who? He said, the Cougars. And the guy said, you mean the Chiefs? And he said, oh, yeah, whatever. And then he stuck his hand out to me and he said, hi, I'm Ted Turner. I mean, he, he had forgotten me in a week and called the team the Cougars. So Ted had a great vision for the team and having it on television, but he wasn't a, a guy for great detail at the time. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey gang, Tim Hanlon here uh, as advertised. Thanks for joining me here on Good Seats Still Available, that curious little podcast that's focused on what used to be in professional sports. Uh, thank you for joining us. If you're uh, a first-time listener, uh, come right in and, uh, and join us. Uh, put your earbuds uh, in place and, uh, and, and join us in our little journey together. Uh, if you're a repeat visitor, uh, we apologize, but uh, we do thank you for coming back uh, uh, to the podcast. Uh, today's episode is uh, is an intriguing one and a fun one, too. Um, uh, for those uh, in the uh, southeastern part of the country, in particular uh, Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, where the show has been around for a while, you'll know Terry Hansen as one of the many voices of the frivolity uh, known as The Big Show with John Boy and Billy. Uh, a longtime staple uh, in Charlotte and uh, Southeastern radio uh, for for many years. Uh, but most people don't recognize that Terry uh, got his uh, start uh, in his uh, uh, Renaissance-like career in uh, in media and sports with uh, various teams in the old North American Soccer League. And that's what we're focused on uh, in our chat with uh, with Terry today. Uh, in particular, uh, three uh, legacy franchises that uh, all have uh, interesting memories attached to them. The Rochester Lancers uh, of the mid-1970s NASL, the Washington Diplomats, certainly, uh, in the latter part of the 70s, and then perhaps most famously for Terry, uh, his role as uh, as general manager uh, under then-owner Ted Turner uh, and the fledgling uh, Turner Sports and Turner Media Enterprise, uh, the Atlanta Chiefs, the uh, reborn Atlanta Chiefs, uh, that ran uh, in uh, Atlanta from uh, 79 through uh, 81. Some very interesting, uh, remarkable, and uh, perhaps uh, wince-inducing uh, stories uh, to be heard uh, in a few minutes from uh, our friend and our uh, our interview subject today, Terry Hansen, here on the show in just a couple of seconds. Uh, before we get to Terry uh, and those, uh, those memories of the old NASL, I do want to remind you that uh, our friends at Audible have been uh, kind enough to give us a sponsorship shot and uh, if you'd like to show some love for the show, uh, we highly encourage you to give Audible uh, a uh, a try through our uh, our little link here to uh, to try out their services. As you probably know by now, and if you don't, shame on you. Uh, Audible is the uh, premier provider of digital audiobooks, and they have over 180,000 titles to choose from uh, in just about every genre that you can imagine, uh, whether it be in comedy or sci-fi or business or romance. Uh, tons of great nonfiction stuff, nonfiction books, uh, sports books, nonfiction uh, sports in particular. Um, Audible tri- uh, titles, uh, he says, uh, without uh, mincing words, uh, play uh, on just about any device that you can think of, whether that be an iPhone, a Kindle, uh, an Android device. Um, 
according to Audible, it's over 500 devices and counting now uh, that will ensure that you can listen to your audiobooks anytime and anywhere. Uh, and as I've hinted, uh, that free trial and that free audiobook download, two free things to try, uh, can be found at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats to get your free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download uh, from Audible. We encourage you to try it. We thank you for doing so. And uh, we thank you, Audible, again, for being a sponsor of our fledgling podcast. Okay, let's, uh, as we say, not waste any more time. Here is Terry Hansen and our conversation about his early days as an executive in the fledgling North American Soccer League. Give a listen. Well, uh, I, I, first of all, I thank you very much for uh, taking time out of your uh, your busy schedule. I know you've got to get up early. You've got a, like a real regular radio show to deal uh, deal with. And I think most people uh, may know, well, a lot of people down in the, in the south and, and the southwestern part of the country may know you as uh, a regular on the big show with John Boy and Billy. But um, we know you, Terry Hansen, as, uh, as someone, and we've discovered through mutual acquaintances, uh, a dark past in uh, in a world that's uh, important to us and, and our little podcast here, uh, and that's your exploits in the old North American Soccer League. And and you didn't uh, say no to a conversation, so I guess some of the scars are uh, still <laughs> not fully healed. But I'd love to delve within uh, with your uh, your history a little bit about uh, some of your times in the NASL, if if you don't mind regaling us with some of those stories. Well, be my guest, sir. Okay, well, I guess the first place to kind of start is at the start. Um, how did you even get uh, enmeshed in the uh, fledgling North American Soccer League? I guess this is somewhere in the mid-70s, right, where I guess your first taste was with uh, the Lancers of Rochester, correct? It, it was. Um, I was a college soccer and baseball coach, and and my career goal was to work in pro sports uh, namely in professional major league baseball. And I was a college soccer baseball coach, like I said, but I was really a baseball coach first. And they told me that when I coached baseball, they asked me if I wanted to coach soccer and I didn't, I had never played. And I said that I, you know, that really didn't interest me. And then they told me that, well, the soccer coach is also going to be the baseball coach in this college. And I said, well, then I'd be happy to do it. So that was back in like 1970, 71. Uh, so I, I hadn't played, and I really didn't know the game very well. So I had to set myself up to learn the game of soccer without having played by getting myself close to assistant coaches that I hired. I knew I could recruit, and I knew I could organize and motivate a team, but I needed to learn the game. So one of my players was drafted to Rochester, New York, to the Lancers. And he called me, my player, and said, you know, they're looking for somebody to work here in the front office. And I said, no kidding. I said, put my name in the hat. So he did. His name was Keith Cordy. He was a defender. And uh, they called me, and I went up for a visit. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I should have known something was up because the, the the day I had my meeting, I came out of my hotel room, and the guy next door to me had died during the night. They were lugging him out on a stretcher. 
So uh, that, I don't know if there was some sort of a foreboding or anything, but uh, it started out to be pretty weird. Well, was this the guy you were? Was this the guy you were ostensibly supposed to uh, be replacing? No, <laughs> oh, that would have been not even at all. It was, it was just a guy in the hotel room next to me. Oh, okay, okay, <laughs> nothing to do with the team. Okay, that's good. Not at all. Now, and where? So, where were you at the time uh, uh, geographically, and uh, what year was this circa? Uh, it was it was about 1975, and I had been coaching college soccer and baseball since 1970. Uh, at that time, it was called St. Benedict's College in Atchison, Kansas, uh, later to be called Benedictine College. Sure. Uh, not, not like St. Procopius up in the Chicago area, but but Benedictine in, in in Kansas. And I went to school there. And I went away to get my master's, and then they hired me back to come coach uh, baseball and soccer. So um, I wanted to get into pro sports pretty badly. I, like I said, I wanted to get to baseball. Uh, so this job opportunity presented itself in Rochester, and kind of flying up blind and not knowing much about the league or Rochester as a team, uh, I jumped right into it with both feet. Well, you wouldn't have been the first person, especially in that heyday of the 70s, especially when there was just fledgling sports leagues and teams and all kinds of ventures popping up all over the place. What were your first impressions, and, and when did you start to question your sanity once you finally got in? Well, you know, I think I think in a, in a, in a, in a way, Tim, that ignorance is bliss. I mean, I came from a small Catholic college with uh, with a budget that was almost next to nothing. Uh, and, uh, and, and I said, I had a success in soccer there. So I said, I never, I never played, but in 1974, uh, I was national collegiate coach of the year in the NAIA. So I did something correct and, over the years. So I, but, so I, I took this job in Rochester and well, I came, I, I said out of a Catholic college with very little budget. So I really didn't understand how bad things really were. I mean, we didn't have a hell of a lot of money. Uh, the front office was undergun and understaffed and, and I was brought in to do, get this public relations, marketing, uh, team personnel, uh, on the, uh, for the U S players, traveling secretary, uh, and also a radio announcer. So, uh, <laughs> I was wearing a few hats in that gig. Well, okay. So, uh, can you kind of give us a little bit of a taste of, of the franchise at that time? I mean, obviously before you had come, it had been. A pretty uh, solid franchise is uh, solid franchise in the previous uh, well at the time the American Soccer League and in many respects uh, coming into the NASL in the early part of the seventies uh, actually helped in many respects helped save the league the NASL that is from extinction when it had gone down to geez what five teams in nineteen seventy one so um, right how popular was the team then I know Hollander Stadium had been sort of recently renamed and you know uh, was it a was it a popular thing in Rochester, and and how how did you find your your efforts? Were you going uphill uh, in terms of trying to get people to come see the team and 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 its on field and off field kind of performance? Well, my job basically is, uh, and I took the job as PR initially, and that's what I thought I'd be doing was to sell this team to the community, to radio and television, uh, and the newspapers. Uh, and, and they were in the mode those years back in the, in the mid seventies, they would have a season, then they would blow things up and do and start all over again the following season. So when I got there, uh, we had a new coach in Dragon Popovich. Uh, he was brand new. I was brand new. 
and he was bringing in uh, all different players than from the year before. A few of the Americans were holdovers, but basically an entire new team was being put into place. So my job in PR, uh, I was, you know, selling such household names as Momchilo Stojanovic, uh, Branko Radovic, Nikola Mijanovic, Blagoje Kremendic, and people like that to the media, uh, which was a tough sell. Uh, and I remember telling Popovich, Dragon, one day, I said, Dragon, your name is now Don. Uh. And Mike Momchilo Stojanovic, I said, your name is now Mike. Uh, and I kind of went from there to try to Americanize these guys a little bit. That's fascinating. So it, it, you are responsible basically for Americanizing at least the first names of, of, frankly, some names that were quite legendary as the years went on, both outdoor and indoor, right? Yeah, I did. I, I remember calling Dragon Don one day and he goes, who is this Don? I said, it's you. So we, we went on from there. But And language is a problem as well, because not only are these guys' names hard to pronounce, most of them didn't speak the language very well. So trying to set up newspaper interviews as well as TV interviews with them was next to impossible. Uh, but we tried our best. Well, so uh, with uh, with Don Popovich coming in, that was uh, for the 76 season or was that 75? It was, it was a 76 season. Okay. So that and based on my knowledge, I guess, of the team, <clears throat> that was actually the first time that they uh, – uh, in '76, they actually made the playoffs for the first time in, in quite some in a, in a bunch of years. So clearly, there was something going on with with Popovich and his, I guess, selection or finding of various players to uh, to perform on the field. No, he he brought in a good team. Uh, I mean, a lot of the like Yugoslavian players had been had played over overseas and had done very well. So basically, it was it was some Americans. And uh, it, it was, uh, you know, had to have three on the field at one time. So there's some guys from Brockport State and Jim May and Kevin, uh, Jim, Jim May and Kevin Gannon and uh, Nelson Capello. And they, so the mix of the American players, uh, along with uh, along with some of these uh, uh, guys from overseas, uh, had a pretty good team, actually. And uh, one of the one of the big, big uh, uh, challenges, like I said, was to sell them to the press. And there was a local TV guy there by the name of Richard Funky, uh, who ended up being a part of the, of the New York State Legislature in, in latter years. And I told him I needed to have some people interviewed. And, of course, he would come out to practice and he would interview all the American players because the other guys couldn't speak the language. And then Popovich, uh, who spoke enough language to know what was going on and could, and could get up in my ear pretty well, was a little upset by that. So I remember having him come out, and I remember saying to Funky, look, you've got to interview the foreign players. And he said, well, they can't speak the language, and what do you want me to do? And I said, well, I don't care if you've got filming the camera or not. Just go ahead and interview them. And then after that, we'll have to talk to some of the American players, and then you can run your piece. <laughs> so I remember after a couple of weeks, Popovich asked me where all the interviews were. And I said, well, they put those in the can. They'll use them at another time. And uh, I remember him telling the players that they've got these interviews somewhere in a container, is what he called them. And I got away with that for about a half a year. Well, Rochester uh, it was an interesting franchise in the NASL in that uh, it was almost like the Green Bay Packers of that of that league. I mean, granted, the NASL, not the uh, paradigm of stability per se, but by contrast, Rochester was quite stable, uh, at least as a, as a perpetual franchise throughout uh, all of the 1970s. But 
clearly a probably the smallest market uh, of all the teams uh, in that league. And, and our budget was next to nothing. Uh, we had an owner in John Petrosi who, who really minded his P's and Q's with his money. And we didn't have many resources at all. And uh, so, so trying to spend money on marketing and public relations was impossible. But again, I didn't know any better. So I, I basically, uh, you know, we, we didn't have any money to spend. So I basically made do with what I had. And, uh, you know, the, the, the problem with the team was that they, they also knew that they, we didn't spend a lot of money on players. So Popovich had to be very resourceful. And he, and he was. And the city, I can't tell you that it was, uh, it was uh, a, a great sports town. And it was a, there, there was a certain pocket of, uh, of, uh, of fans that were mostly Italian uh, and some were uh, uh, Yugoslavian, but mostly Italian fans. And we had a good solid base of around five or 6,000. And that, that put us in Hollander Stadium about, I don't know, about halfway full, I guess. So the atmosphere was okay. Uh, but again, I, like I said, I didn't know any better. I mean, I just, uh, I was new to all of this and I was just happy I was in pro sports. Now you didn't stay in Rochester for long though, because, uh, you, uh, went to Washington, the diplomats, uh, relatively soon thereafter, correct? Well, yeah, they, they, well, they, when, right when the season was over, they quit paying me. Oh, oh uh, and, there, there is and, that, and, huh? <laughs> and that'll get your attention pretty quickly. So they, they, so they, what they had done in the past years was they had just basically run the season and then not paid a lot of their bills and then incorporated into another company the following year and, and gone from year to year that way. So when the season was over, they quit paying me. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm going to have to find another job, I guess. And the, the, the good thing about working in Rochester was that the league expectations from us was very low in terms of administratively and and doing things according to the league office, et cetera. And I went in there and I did that, all that stuff very well. So I, I earned a, I had a pretty, pretty high profile and a lot of people knew who I was. So when the season was over, I thought to myself, well, I'm, I'm going to have some opportunities, I hope. And, uh, and I saw, I started sending out letters and trying to make contacts. And, uh, John Carbray, uh, was hired to be the general manager of the Washington Diplomats. And he had been in AAA baseball and had been the executive of the year. And again, I go back to baseball. Uh, I wrote him a note when he came to the league and congratulated him. And I said it was good to see somebody that had been in baseball come to soccer because that was where I came from. And he called me, I guess, right after he got the letter and said, look, I'm looking for a PR director. Would you be interested? And I said, well, of course I would be interested. And by the time I said yes, and by the time I got there, I also had inquiries in, in from the Cosmos, uh, as well as the New England, uh, they weren't a team in, then yet. I can't remember the name of what their name was at that time. Boston, Boston, uh, it, Boston Minutemen. Uh, yes. And, but you know what? Maybe it was, do you know what year they, they became the team in? I think that was 78 is when they were uh, the, the, the okay, team. Okay, but I, I, I can't remember who called me to go up there, but I went up there for an interview as well as the Cosmos. And I liked the opportunity in Washington because, here we go again, the owners in Washington had, were going to bring the San Diego Padres to D.C. And at the 11th hour, Ray Kroc 
uh, a fellow from the Chicago area there rescued the team and kept him in San Diego. <laughs> so I ended up going to to Washington because of Carberry and his baseball background and because of the ownership situation there. So I went and I was a PR director for the 1977 70, 77 season. I got there in the, at the end of 76. So you walked into probably a little bit more of a stable environment there. And if I, if I, if I have my stats correctly, um, in 77, the uh, diplomats went from, I don't know, I think their average attendance was something like in 76 was just shy of 6,000. And according to the stats that I see here, 77, it, it doubled to about 13,000. Um, yeah, must- Carberry, Carberry was a master uh, promoter. Uh, that's where he got his chops in minor league baseball. And he brought gimmicks uh, to, to, the, to, to the table. We, we would paint the field. I don't know if you ever saw that in any aerial shots, but it was a soccer ball with red and black and the whole field was painted and he just had all kinds of promotional ideas and we hired an ad agency, which, which was unknown, which was something that a lot of teams weren't able to do. And ownership uh, uh, had put a lot of money behind the team. So yeah, it was a much more stable situation. My office is at RFK Stadium and that's where we played games. So I kind of felt like I had hit the big leagues. How did you find the Washington, D.C. Uh, soccer public uh, and your ability to sell and market and do all the things that you ostensibly started to do in Rochester? Was it easier uh, and or maybe more uh, visible because you're in a more metropolitan area? Well, we, you're right about the metropolitan area. That were, there, there were a lot of people that knew the game, and there was, and there was all, always the, uh, you know, the fringe part of the, of the immigrants who, who followed the game, a lot of different ones in that, in that melting pot up in D.C., uh, but, but there, was a, there was a small rift, for whatever reason, between some of the youth soccer leagues and the pro team there. So we had to go to work uh, and kind of sell ourselves to the Annandale Boys Club and to a Springfield Soccer Association and a lot of those teams that I'm not saying that the past teams alienated themselves, but I will say that the relations when I got there and we got there were not the best. So we always had our selling shoes on. And I went from not really understanding PR and, and, and not having worked in it before to now I was dealing with the Washington Post. And uh, our beat writer was John Feinstein. Sure. And, uh, and so that I was growing up learning the PR business with the Washington Post. And uh, as I said, the ownership gave us resources. So it was, uh, it, it was a pretty good ride, and we got started with uh, our coach was Dennis Violet, who, who, uh, who was a legend in his own right. And uh, so things were going pretty good that first year. What, is your, what was your perception of the league uh, at that point? I mean, obviously you said somewhat lowered expectations in Rochester, and I'm sure as the league got more popular, you know, expanded to 24 teams eventually, the whole national television thing, which we can talk about in a, in a few minutes, but... Um, did you get the sense that, that this league was on its uh, ascendancy and, and perhaps was maybe you were really onto something by now being with a team that's not only more you know stable, but uh, the league itself seems to be gaining uh, more roots and more stability, at least interest? Yeah, we were getting a lot of interest. The national marketing dollars started to flow towards the league and some of the clubs. Uh, Pele was, uh, was big in New York. 
the Cosmos were kind of at the height of their uh, of their uh, ascendance there. With the Kinali was coming on board, Pele was there. They were playing in the Meadowlands. Um, I was there the night they broke the record. I think we had seventy eight thousand people or something up there in the game, and I was happened to be there at that game. So it was a fun ride. But going back to my to, to, to what I initially said, I had never been in, in any other leagues, and I really had nothing to compare it to. So it was all good for me. And uh, but the league itself was really starting to get a foothold in the American culture, and uh, and it was fun to fun to be around and fun to watch. Um, the diplomats also played indoors too. Did you? Uh, I suspect that you had to kind of stop gears and try to now pitch the indoor game too at the old armory, right? Yeah, we did. And the, one of the big jobs I had was going out and finding a field and uh, getting boards to come in from hockey. And uh, that was a, that was a kind of a good gargantuan effort because uh, you know, we had to start from scratch and end up going up to Delaware to look for a, a carpet up there that somebody had had. Uh, of all people, Andy Dolich put me onto somebody up there. He at that time was in, in the hockey league with the Washington Capitals. So I had to go f- find a carpet and buy it. And, and the Washington Capitals put me onto a guy who put, who had uh, boards. So we had to go out and start the whole thing. The challenge, quite frankly, for me at that time was more operational than it was PR-wise. We had to put a team on the field in the armory, which we had never played indoor before in that building. Well, I, I got to think that the armory, uh, uh, venerable as that uh, structure is, uh, and at, at the time was, was probably not your first choice to play indoor soccer during the winter, right? It, it wasn't. Uh, it was in a bad part of, of the city. Of course, it was right across the street from RFK. So we figured if we could draw to RFK, we could draw to the armory. And with the people who were in hockey uh, in that town, we thought we'd, there'd be some crossover. And there was, uh, but I, I, one of the things I remember most about that season was our goalkeeper was Eric Martin, and he broke his leg in an indoor game. And the and all and all the pl- uh, players from overseas saw the indoor game as nothing but a gimmick, and they were out there to play and have fun. They weren't out there to get hurt. So we had some 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 of the some of our uh, of our foreign players weren't too pleased with the effort. They didn't like indoor that much. And we had a sales job to do on our players as much as we did the fans. Um, in terms of the crowds there, uh, having grown up as a Cosmos fan myself, as a, a, a little tyke in the northern New Jersey area, and uh, having season tickets there, um, and going to a few away games, obviously, uh, it, it, if, if, I, if memory serves, a lot of the, the sellouts or your largest crowds, I suspect, were Cosmos-related. Is that a fair statement? Uh, around the league, I think that'd be a fair statement. Sure. Uh, w- one of the one of the issues I kind of always had, and I uh, I was not schooled in marketing or PR. Uh, I've been in, in education though, and, but I knew enough to know that I would rather have uh, twelve thousand people wanting to get into a ten thousand seat stadium than fifteen thousand to go into a forty thousand seat stadium. So RFK, we had decent crowds. But it was only a third of the stadium, and, and the ambiance wasn't very good. And and around the league, I mean, a lot of teams around the league were doing the same thing in bigger stadiums. Chicago was doing that. Uh, one of the few people who really understood and got it was uh, Fort Lauderdale, mm-hmm. because they were in Lockhart Stadium when they when they moved to Fort Lauderdale from Miami. 
and it was kind of a small, smaller stadium. And the ambiance they had uh, was uh, really very good. And now Tampa uh, had a bigger stadium as well, but that, their promotion, they were, they were just years ahead of everybody. So the job, the job the Rowdies did and the job that they did in uh, Fort Lauderdale uh, were things that we kind of tried to pattern ourselves after. And then uh, out on the West Coast, Seattle was doing a good job with Jack Daly and those guys as well. Yeah, well, it's, you know, clearly that's that's what bedeviled the, the launch of pro soccer uh, in the late 60s here in this country as well, right? You had baseball owners and a few NFL owners, I believe, uh, you know, and playing in these big stadiums and were kind of just crushed when, you know, two, three, four thousand people were rattling around, you know, a 50, 60,000 seat stadium. And, you know, it took it took until Major League Soccer to kind of get to that soccer specific uh, template. Uh, to kind of, I'll to, jump ahead. I'll, yeah. I'll jump. I'll jump ahead a little bit and get to Atlanta for a second, please. We uh, we we had a a big stadium there of around forty thousand, and we, you know we had about three or four thousand people rattling around in there. And uh, one night, though, the ball kicked into the stands, and get this, nobody could find the ball. <laughs> <laughs> now, nobody is... could find where the ball went because it <laughs> went into a, into a section of. Uh, Stands where nobody was sitting, and and they just couldn't find it. Yeah, this is the I old. I think eventually uh, they found it, but for about five or ten minutes, they couldn't find the ball. Well, yeah, it's an expensive ball, right? Sixty-seven dollars at the time, <laughs> uh, and a collector site of now, of course. Uh, but we're talking about the old uh, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, correct? The yes, multi-purpose exactly. gem that was there for for quite some time. All right, let's talk about how you got to Atlanta because that seems like a a, a nice big fat story in and of itself, given your ownership and all that. But how did you? Uh, was the Washington diplomats experience more of a visibility thing for you? And, and, and that somehow can't garner the attraction of the, uh, of the fledgling uh, Atlanta franchise. Well, when I was in Washington as a PR director, the first year and assistant GM, the second year, uh, and, and both years I did television. Uh, I did the color an- analysis on the games and, uh, and I really enjoyed doing that. And it was kind of, uh, kind of unique to have a front office person working in a booth, I guess. But uh, I kind of went forward. I, I worked with John Miller, uh, the, the, the ESPN guy for a year, uh, in the second year and a guy named Don Earl, the first year had been in hockey with the Philadelphia Flyers. And, um, and I knew that, I knew that Turner was going to buy a team and come into the league. And I really had given her not much thought. Uh, although I did again, baseball, I mean, I mean, I knew that he owned the Braves and it turned out that one night, uh, Ted Turner was in Atlanta, excuse me, in Washington. And he had bought a team for TV purposes for programming. And he had seen me do a game and he liked what he saw. And he had a guy, a fellow by the name of Dick Cecil was running the operation there. And Dick had done his own research and found out uh, what I was all about and what I could do and not do. So I got a call from Dick Cecil uh, asking me if I'd be interested in coming to Atlanta. And, uh, and, and I thought I was really excited about that because of the Braves, uh, or the Braves angle. And I'd never been down south other than I was living in suburban Virginia, but I had really not been to the deep south down in Georgia. And I thought it might be something I'd like to do, so I went down for a visit. And uh, I liked what I saw. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the, the being around the Hawks and the Braves at the same time. Turner was charming. And, uh, and it didn't take much of a sell for me to go make the move there for the 19, I went in 1978 for the 79 season. 
Okay, friends, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to quickly remind you that today's episode of Good Seat Still Available is brought to you by our friends at Audible, the premier provider of digital audiobooks with over 180,000 titles to choose from in just about every genre you could think of. Audible titles play on iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices and MP3 players for listening anytime, anywhere. And for a limited time, my audience can listen to a free download of any book that they choose, as well as get a 30-day free trial when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And you can choose from over 180,000 titles, as we said, including uh, one that I'm listening to right now. It's called The 10-Gallon War by John Eisenberg. That's the story of the NFL's Cowboys, the AFL's Texans, and the feud for Dallas's pro football future. Um, another one on my list, which I have yet to download, but is on my queue, uh, that could be interesting to our audience here, is called The National Forgotten League by Dan Daly. Entertaining stories and observations from pro football's first 50 years. Those are just two of the many thousands of titles to choose from, and not just in sports history, but you name the genre that uh, you might want to listen to, and Audible's got it. By the way, two, uh, two guests, perhaps, that we'll have on the show, hopefully sometime soon. But again... Go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free 30-day trial as well as your free audiobook download to try it out for yourself. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now, back to our conversation. Now, for, for those uh, diligent uh, soccer historians, and, and we do have a few, uh, more than a few that do listen to the show, and the soccer episodes tend to be pretty popular, and and, um, uh, and this may be one of the reasons why, but but Atlanta was not an expansion franchise. It was actually acquired from uh, another location and relocated it, uh, I believe. Colorado. Right? Yeah, right. Colorado Caribou. And I'm shocked that uh, the Chiefs would not keep the uh, the caribou uniforms uh, that the uh, players used the year before. With the buckskin, didn't they have buckskin or something like that? They did, and the fringe, if you don't remember, you all remember. There was, uh, I forget who the, uh, the and I'm, I, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on this, but there was a, um, a high-end fashion designer who, who put those together. But there was the, they were regarded as, uh, they, they looked like they were half uniforms, and then on the bottom there was these fringe elements that would just fly up and down and it was uh it was quite something but i, 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 I remember seeing those and i, I remember seeing those and they, i remember they were butt ugly i remember that and, and i'm glad they didn't bring that feature to atlanta <laughs> but I, I gotta tell you though that the uh, the chiefs uniforms i thought were actually quite uh uh standout i thought they were uh, they were bold and they were yet you know tasteful i thought the logo the chief's logo was it was quite good you, did you have a hand in any of that stuff i did not it was all cecil uh, who had also been a so he he started the first Atlanta Chiefs version one. He had been a vice president with the Braves, and he was in charge of all stadium uh, 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 activities that, that weren't the Braves. So he was with the Braves as a vice president, and then left the organization, but stayed involved with booking other things into the stadium. And then he had the first Chiefs one there. So then he decided that he wanted to get a, another soccer team in Atlanta and went to Turner and sold him on the idea. So the uniforms and the logo were basically uh, uh, a rendition of what they had in the earlier days when Phil Woosnam was the coach. So why do you think Cecil, because obviously Cecil was part of the, the original Chiefs franchise and obviously, uh, you know, part of the, the league in its most you know dark days, obviously 
hiring Phil Woosnam at the time uh, paid off in spades. Why do you think Cecil decided to somehow get back into the game again, so to speak, uh, with the second? Well, he was a visionary, uh, and uh, and he and I think he understood that soccer. Uh, he felt that soccer was going to be the next big, big, great sport, and that and that he he was in the business of promoting, and in the business of putting other events in stadiums, and he uh, was a, was a fan of the game, and he just he just had a feeling that he could sell Ted on the idea of TV programming for soccer, uh, as well as being able to sell it into Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. So uh, that's kind of what his vision was. And, uh, you know, and he was a lot far ahead of his time because look at what's happening there now in Atlanta. But, uh, you know, he gave it his best shot and we, and we went down there with a, a lot of hopes and a lot of money to spend. Uh, Turner gave us that when he, when I, when I came to town, um, he, uh, introduced me as the general manager, uh, as well as the color analyst, uh, on the games. And, uh, he said, he said, I was like buying a suit with two pair of pants. <laughs> and about a week later, I was in the stadium club having lunch with a member of the Braves, uh, front office who was in charge of all the radio broadcasts. And Turner walked through and he said to the guy I was sitting there, didn't even acknowledge me. He said to the guy, so how are things going with the Braves uh, and the radio? And the guy told him, he said, and the Hawks. And he says, well, they got this and that going on. They got this sold and that. And he said, and the Cougars. And the guy said, who? He said, the Cougars. And the guy said, you mean the Chiefs? And he said, oh, yeah, whatever. And then he stuck his hand out to me and he said, hi, I'm Ted Turner. I mean, <laughs> he had forgotten me in a week and called the team the Cougars. So... Ted had a great vision for the for the for the team and having it on television, but he wasn't a guy for great detail at the time. Well, okay, so was that indicative of his quote unquote interest in the sport, or was he largely convinced by Cecil to kind of really do it and just thought it would be a an add on to an already strong sports you know component of his uh, his organization? Well, much like the Braves, uh, you know, he saw a, a stadium as a TV studio. And, uh, and he, he, you know, he really wanted something TV programming. He thought soccer would be one of the next great things to, to be on, on his network. And like he did with the Braves as, as the kind of the model, he bought the team and he did the same thing with the Hawks. He wanted to put them on the air and own them at the same time. So he saw the opportunity of getting involved in soccer and owning a team, uh, and putting them on television. And with, for him, uh, you know, uh, attendance in the stadium was gravy. So we were playing with the house cards for a while, but the problem was that our TV ratings weren't very good either. And neither was the team. All right. Let's talk, uh, talk about that because uh, I, for those who might remember <clears throat> circa 78, 79, uh, you know, we, there, that was the era of ca in cable television, which was really starting to take root. I think ESPN had come on the scene fairly recently. You had a number of super stations, right? And the, the, t the term was actually coined, uh, by Ted, right? And and one of the, right. if not the most powerful one, was out of Atlanta, right? And that was a effectively a national broadcast, and and it was uh, it was one of the only real ways to see on a regular basis NASL soccer uh, until ABC came on the on the scene to do their national games and occasional TVS game prior to that. But what was that like? I mean, you had a fairly extensive schedule of games that you were you were doing with your uh, your colleague Bob Neal, right? We did, I think we just did just about every game. 
and, and and there's been a quote over the years attributed to me uh, that was that was mistaken. Uh, I never fa- never faulted TV for not having a good attendance. I think that was a Dan Wood quote that I somehow got ascribed to me because I always kind of got and understood the idea that we were a TV company uh, who had a soccer team. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, we were basically the superstation concept was a local TV station who happened to be, uh, taken on a satellite around the country. So we were basically owned and operated by a local broadcaster, which was Turner Broadcasting. And they just put the satellite up around the country. And when I got there, we were going into about 14 to 16 states. And, uh, and at that time, that's what we were doing. And soccer, you know, was, was, we thought going to be really big. And we had kind of a Bob Neal and I kind of had a little bit of a cult following. And, uh, and, and the thing that I think I brought to the party as a, as a broadcaster, I had to learn the game and I was late to the party and learning the game. And a lot of times people, unless they were part of the, uh, part of the, uh, uh, of the community that had played soccer growing up, uh, and come from other countries or something, people were learning the game as well. And I think I could probably explain the game because I just learned it myself to newcomers. And so we would talk about what the offside rule was and things of that sort for people who were just trying to learn the game at the same time. I think maybe some of the veterans of the game were maybe a little frustrated with us, but that was not the majority of our audience. Well, I, I also think too. You have to put put it in in the times, right? I mean, that you had you had a, you had a league that was obviously growing by leaps and bounds, and there was a lot of <clears throat> fervor and interest in, in it, especially in New York and Tampa and some of these other markets we mentioned before. And uh, look, ABC, I think, even did a uh, a less good job of that, right? When Jim McKay and Paul Gardner, Paul Gardner, who's been on our our show a few about a month and a half ago, uh, you know, would. You know, he he explained that it, there was a balance there, right? You had uh, the audience was basically comprised of two sets of of substantial number of people, which is those who are familiar with the game and want to get to the nuances, and and probably a bigger majority of others who are relatively new and more curiosity seeking, and you know they don't understand offsides, et cetera. I, I look, having seen some old clips and from what I remember of the old TBS broadcasts, watching as a uh, as a snotty young kid in, in northern New Jersey on my cable box. Um, it felt like it was, I think you gave more credit to the, to the audience than maybe you were sort of, uh, than you're sort of giving yourself credit for. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, I mean, I was just operating on instinct and, and Bob Neal had been a football announcer, uh, and he never had been around soccer himself. So my job was to be both the color analyst, uh, general manager of the team, and also teaching Bob Neal the game. So the first game, uh, that we ever did. Uh, it was, you know, that he was first game he'd ever done. And uh, I was trying to teach him as we went along. And again, it was easy to teach him because I just learned the game myself in the last five to eight years. Uh, and so we kind of went into it blind, but I, I go back to what I said initially about Rochester, you know, ignorance is bliss. I really didn't know what type of a, of a mountain we were trying to climb all those, all those years. It was just fun to be around and fun to be around the game or on the growth of the game. And uh, Neil and I really, we really enjoyed ourselves. But, you know, we were putting a product on the field to, to sell to a TV audience. And the product wasn't very good. It, it, obviously, being part of a, a television-centric organization, um, did you ever, uh, you know, uh, did you ever 
uh, find yourself kind of, uh, you know, stumbling or how about missing a goal, right? Did you go cut it? Did you ever find situations where you broke away for a commercial, right? Which is, you know, uh, common and coming back and having a goal scored uh, and, and how do you handle something like that? Certainly that happened. Uh, and, and although I have to say, you see the other thing is we didn't score that often on, uh, on the road. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, we, we, uh, we had faced a lot of different challenges. But they're basically the person, people doing our games, were, were had, had been Braves and, and Hawks uh, production people. So, as like everything else at that point in time, they were learning as we went along as well. So, I mean, I like me, I was telling the the, uh, the commercial breaks from the booth because I could tell when the ball was going out of bounds and when it would be a corner kick and when and when, and when play would be paused for a little bit. So I basically had a key, a, a, a key cue that I would use to the truck, and they break the commercials that way. Interesting. So did uh, and do you remember? Did you broadcast home games as well, or just the away games? Because I'm sure that was a contentious conversation as to whether you should broadcast home games. Correct. Well, the Braves have set the model. They televised all their games, and I can't remember specifically. I know we did all the road games. And I think we must have done maybe half of the home games. Uh, and it wasn't for a desire for Ted not to do all of them. I think we probably had a sales issue with selling so many of them on air. Uh, but I know we did all the road games and a portion of the home games. And, and like I said, there's, over the years, I've been had a quote that I had blamed attendance on the TV and nothing to be further from the truth. Uh, because I knew that we had a soccer team in Atlanta because of television, not in spite of it. Yeah, that's a unique perspective because I think the 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 reigning thought at that time in American sports was, uh, you know, and uh, the blackout rule, the NFL, et cetera, is that you know broadcasting home games is the ultimate uh, the ultimate downer to the uh, to the to the gate, right? But um, you know, you weren't right. working for any traditional team per se. You were working for a company that was very much on the cutting edge of television. You know, and I got that early on. And, uh, and, and I'm, because I mean, my, my, initially I went in there and I thinking about the Braves and, you know, they're not drawing anybody, but Ted, 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 Ted could care less what was in the stadium. As long as the TV numbers were good. Uh, and as long as the, the games were going around the country, I mean, at that point in time, Braves were America's team. And, uh, he, he was betting on soccer was going to be the next big thing to happen. And he was going to own a team and have the TV rights for it. So yeah, it was cutting edge. And and ironically, I mean, I ended up being the first head of the of the sports division after soccer ended. So I mean, I always got the concept of what it was, and it helped me grow into a job over there where I was the first head of sports for Turner Broadcast. Uh, you talked about the, the team before. Obviously, not great, especially in '79 and uh, and '80. Um, but in '79, though, there was a unique little asterisk in in the in the NASL, and that was the a player strike of all things, right? A, a league that's fledgling, 24 markets, a new, you know, national television contract, and all of a sudden, there's labor strife and there's a strike. Um, yeah. Do, do you do you remember any of those sort of components? Because if I'm not mistaken, I think the Chiefs and the team, I guess, opted not to strike, while others in the league did. And it was just chaos, I think, in terms of what was on the field and, and, and frankly, what fans actually knew was going on. It was chaotic. And, uh, and, and if memory serves me correct, when I was in D.C., 
is when they kind of started to do the, the, the formation of the union because it was the NFL Players Association. It was the, was the people who were in charge of it. And it was a guy by the name of Ed Garvey who wanted to organize soccer like he did football. He also was betting on the fact that soccer was going to be the next big thing. And uh, we released a player by the name of John Kerr from Washington, and Garvey picked him up to work full-time for the Players Association. Uh, then I made a move to Atlanta, and that's when the, that's when the, uh, the, the, the union really became uh, a little bit stronger. And we didn't have a tremendous amount of people visiting us from the Players Association down in Atlanta. And early on, Turner, you know, he, he kind of found out about it, and he had fought off for years people wanting to come in and organize the TV networks. So I remember him, him having discussion with us and then the players saying, look, I, you know, I've never, I'll treat you guys good. I mean, you don't have to have a union for me to treat you well. Uh, I, I do that to all my employees. So he said, my best advice to you would be, uh, I would not get too involved with the union if I were you. And don't forget I'm writing the checks. So it wasn't a threat, but it was a, it was a, it was a statement uh, that he got out ahead, of the, out ahead of the curve a little bit and talked to the players and the front office staff. And that's why they opted out and decided not to uh, not not to join the union. But am I correct in that the uh, the, the team was one of the that the, the, they opted not to to honor the strike? That's correct. And so, ha- uh, and ha- my, ha- my, my memory gets a little hazy, but uh, but I do know that we did not we did not uh, we bought, we opted out of the strike and did not participate. Very interesting. I mean, obviously, it didn't make much of a difference in terms of the outdoor season of the performance that year, and then obviously the year following. All right, but let's talk about one other little interesting little twist about this team. Uh, and we talked about indoors before in your uh, in your travels with uh, with the Diplomats, but uh, ironically, it looks like that the uh, Chiefs actually drew better and actually performed better indoors at the Omni than they did outdoors. Um, that how, was unbelievable. How does, how does that happen? Well, I think we had a pretty good marketing uh, uh, apparatus in place with Ken Small who we brought in from the Fort Lauderdale Strikers. And I thought he was always fell victim to the fact in outdoor soccer that we didn't have the correct ambience. I mean, I think, you know, he could have been a marketing genius anywhere, but when you've got 4,000 people in a 45,000 seat stadium, you're you're not going to have any ambience and no excitement was going to get built. So he was able to, as as, a promotional uh, uh, vehicles were kind of able to get into, uh, into play more and indoor and there was a big hockey town at the time, and the Atlanta Flames had just left uh, in hockey. So there was an audience that, that kind of wanted to see things in the Omni that weren't basketball. And we had a name. We had name recognition. And indoor soccer uh, to new fans was more exciting than, than the, at least the version of the outdoor game we played. It was more exciting. And uh, so we got, you know, we got our uh, ad agency uh, on board. They got very active with selling the team. We did well at the outset, and the crowds kept building. And it was, it was a lot of fun. In fact, there was a big uh, rumor that we were going to leave the NASL and join the MISL at the end of our existence, which we never did do, but it would have it made perfect sense. Very interesting. I did not know that they were one of the teams that might have actually made that jump. Well, it was logical because we 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 kind of were one of the teams that did so much better. You just mentioned it in indoor as opposed to outdoor. And I don't remember that we were naturally being courted 
by the ML by by the MISL. But I remember Ed Tepper and I can't remember the other guy's name at the time who was charged of the MISL. Earl Foreman. But they had some conversations with us. They wanted to have our superstation as well. But at the end of the day, I think Turner just decided to get enough of soccer. And uh, we, when we when we closed on the uh, the uh, NASL team, we shut down everything. Well, all right. So let's talk about that because uh, you know that uh, that that uh, you were. It seems like you were not able to draft that attendance success from that first indoor season to the next. Uh, I think actually the team outdoors in '79 uh, was the least attended of all the teams in the league at that point. No, I think they were. Uh, it was. I think we announced something like four thousand a game, and I can't tell you that even that many were in the stands. And I think also, if you look at the record, I think the first year we were like, I don't know what, 14 and 18 or something. And that year, second year, I think we were like seven and 25 or something like that. That's right. That's right. And uh, so, you know, so our, the, the, the team wasn't very exciting. There wasn't very much ambiance. And uh, the, the attendance was just woeful. And I think you're correct. I think we did bottom out the, at the bottom of the league as to what our attendance was. And, uh, and I always felt, uh, in spite of the fact I knew we were a TV company, I always felt that we had a handicap by playing in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. I rather would have been in a place like Lockhart Stadium had in Fort Lauderdale, where we had enough ambiance to where we kind of did in the indoor. And in indoor, we kind of created that ambiance. We had that excitement, and we could never have that spark in, in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. And I think maybe our biggest crowd of all three years I was there was, I don't know, maybe 14,000, 15,000. And that, of course, was for a Pele game. Was there any discussion of perhaps finding another location, perhaps Bobby Dodd Stadium? Obviously, you've got a team in Atlanta now that is, uh, you know, a part of the NFL thing. But they're, you know, it's sell out, sell out crowds at Bobby Dodd. Uh, or was that a not a non-issue considering a, a, a Turner's ownership of the Braves and, and its relationship with the Atlanta Fulton County? Well, well, Dick Cecil's vision was it would be in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, and he was tough. He was a tough sell. And uh, because he was he was in charge of something called Braves Production Think, which is really where where he got the soccer team underneath that underneath that umbrella that he was the promoter of. So I mean I had to try to convince him to go somewhere small. And ironically, the last game we ever played outdoor uh, when I was there was in a, was in a twelve thousand seat stadium called DeKalb County Stadium out in DeKalb County mm-hmm. around Decatur area. That was a high school football stadium. And of all people, we played Fort Lauderdale. And I believe we might have played, I can't tell you exactly what the attendance was, but we were close to a full, full attendance. And that was the one piece of ambiance that I was always looking for. And it was our last game. You know, I, it's, it's interesting, too, because as you stumbled through the 80 season and then went back to indoors, I mean, you went from the least attended outdoor team in the North American Soccer League to the most attended indoor team that next winter. Our agency had kind of positioned us in the marketplace as something to do where you had to be. The young, the young jet-setting crowd should be there. It was full of good times, and we had all kinds of crazy promotions. Uh, we, we brought in, remember Slim Whitman? Of course. Uh, the guy that he's... We brought him in for a concert. Uh, we had all kinds of ideas. We were we were marketing to the Georgia Tech crowd. We were marketing to a kind of a young single crowd downtown Atlanta. 
And then, and then, the, and then we always had that base of soccer fans that we had out in DeKalb County and out in Cobb County that were still coming. But where we really uh, kind of hit pay dirt was in that young, younger, upper uh, mobile audience that just liked to have some action. All right. Well, so maybe we could just jump ahead to the the eighty one season, right? Because that's uh, when did you know the gig was up? I mean, obviously a lot of seeds and maybe you know were kind of laid bare and were, you know, it, it uh, based on what I've read, it, it sounded like that that Turner kind of gave. The, the organization and the league kind of an ultimatum that this was, you know, going into the third outdoor season was kind of be the last sort of chance, I guess, so to speak, to kind of to kind of get it right. And there seemed to be a couple of sort of uh, glimmers of hope. I mean, the team obviously did much better. It was in the playoffs for the first time ever outdoors, uh, but it still wasn't nearly enough. Now, was it? Yeah, Chadwick turned around the team the best he possibly could. I think that was the first winning year, or the only winning year we had in the three. And, uh, and we knew that our time was limited. And I remember one time waking up on a Sunday morning and getting it and seeing a big newspaper article in the Atlanta constitution. And it was a quote in there from Turner and the article, but it was also a, a kind of a little bit of a header next to his picture. And, and he said that the chiefs had one foot on the expressway and another on the banana peel. And I'll never forget that quote. And I thought to myself, oh, goodness, I better uh, get the resume ready because I don't know what I'll be doing when the season's over. So, yeah, we knew that the third year was probably going to be our last. And we tried our best, and it was kind of a last-ditch effort for me to get the team in a smaller stadium. But that wasn't going to work because it wasn't a part of the, of the infrastructure of Turner Broadcasting in the big stadium owning the Braves and, 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 and at that time being the, the primary tenant within Fulton County Stadium. So we uh, we went into that last year knowing it was probably it. And uh, at what point during the season did you kind of know? I mean, was it uh, was it going into the playoffs? I mean, was it kind of a fait accompli? It really didn't matter. I mean, was there a point literally in that season when you kind of just knew that it was not going to happen, or was it kind of decided kind of at the end of the season? Well, I think on the, on the business side over at, on Techwood, which is where the corporate offices were, versus where we were in the stadium we just tried to keep hope alive and, uh, and didn't, and didn't get too much into the business side of the operation, at least from the team side. I mean, I was aware, uh, because of Wessler was my boss who re- reported to Turner. So I reported to Robert Wessler and, 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 and Ted. So I knew that the jig was probably going to be up, but the players were, you know, they thought that if they could just keep, if they could win and have a winning season, uh, and maybe draw up better crowds that, that there was a chance. And, uh, and we were not about to tell them there wasn't a chance because Turner could be so, so, you know, he could be so off the cuff. Maybe he would get, uh, excited about something. We decided to keep the team for another year. So we all went into the latter part of the season, hoping uh, beyond hope that we'd have a future. Uh, but I think deep down, I mean, at least me, I I knew kind of deep down that was probably going to be it. Well, it did serve you well, though, right? I mean, a segue into uh, a television broadcasting career in sports uh, and obviously uh, from a place uh, that, you know, obviously was uh, birthing uh, quite a bit of it in, in, in the modern form. I guess the one last question I'd ask you about sort of the last days of of the Chiefs, and, and I've seen this speculated, but maybe you could sort of address it, is um, I get the suspicion that 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 Ted and the organization were both distracted by their new baby, the CNN Cable News Network. Well, you know, they didn't give us 
too much attention from the get-go. I mean, we were pretty much left on our own to run that team. So I can't necessarily say that because of CNN and everything else, it took anything away from soccer. He kind of always ran a separate organization. Uh, I mean, I know that my bosses in Wessler and Ted were otherwise occupied with the, with the, 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 the explosive growth of the company, but it really didn't affect the soccer team that much. Yeah, it's interesting because it seemed like that was also the time when you had a bunch of corporate uh, investors that had come into the league circa 78, 79, 80, like Madison Square Garden, for example, the Washington Diplomats. And it seemed like a pretty quick exit again. Uh, and it seemed like uh, it was kind of pretty much uh, uh, almost the thing to do, if you will, from from a corporate ownership perspective, kind of throwing in the towel. But um, well, I mean, there had to be some fun times, though, no, in all of that, both Atlanta as well as your other two stops. I mean. Uh, was it a good learning environment at least? I mean, obviously you said you didn't know any better. Uh, I got to think though, that there had to be uh, some, some uh, hijinks or at least some, some lessons learned that, that prepared you well for your, you know, your Renaissance career uh, afterwards in, in media and entertainment. Well, I was excited just to be there uh, from the day that I got in, in town in Rochester uh, until the last game in Atlanta. I mean, it was pro sports. And it was something I always wanted to do. And, uh, and, and it was a lot more money and budget than I ever had when I was coaching. And every year I made a, a move from a team that there's a little bit more available to us for resources. I was leaving uh, Washington right when uh, Madison Square Garden was coming in. So uh, we, we, at that time, we were still owned by the Dan Dansky family. The Madison Square Garden was just buying the team when I was leaving. Uh, and I got to Turner. So it was, I mean, it was exciting times. And, uh, and I mean, I mean, I met great people, had a lot of good friends. They still have today. It was fun. We had a great camaraderie amongst all of us in the league, uh, executives, I mean, uh, team, uh, league meetings and, and all the guys that got to know there and all the teams that got together and when, when they would come to town, so we had a, we had a wonderful time, made some great friends. And like I said, it was pro sports. And for me, I mean, it was just, it was just the, the, the cherry on the topping for me. And uh, I just enjoyed the hell out of it the whole time I was there. Did you ever think, though, that given sort of the demise of, of your involvement, the, the, uh, the organization's involvement with pro soccer um, and, your, and your ride through it during much of the 70s, did you ever think that it could come back sort of in a reincarnated, reincarnated form like it is today in Major League Soccer and, and I think a fledgling minor league system as well here in the United States. We kept waiting for it to happen. I mean, we, we were marketing our butt off and, uh, and, and we went to all the youth teams. And, and I mean, that was all three markets I was in. We went to the youth team. We went to, we went to the hotbeds of soccer and participation. But one of the things that I became aware of, I think uh, along the way was that participation did not necessarily translate into spectatorship. That you had you had soccer families uh, where the kids were practicing two or three times a week and had a game or two a week, and the mothers were always at the old soccer on. They were in a station wagon taking these kids around to practices and games, but they really weren't getting in that station wagon headed down to the stadium on the weekends. It was a tough sell, and uh, and I know in a lot of, uh, in Washington, for instance. We had a, what they called a youth parade before the games where we, we, anybody in team uniform was able to come on the field and encircle the field at the start of the game. And the idea, of course, was to get kids there, to have somebody had to bring them there, and it would be their parents, and they could be on the field in uniform. 
So I think the great frustration was never being able to take that youth soccer, at least when I was involved, and, and translate it over to be a pro audience. And that didn't happen for a long time. And, uh, and I, 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 thought it, I thought it was going to happen in the 80s. I really did. Uh, and then as the years wore out, I just could not quite figure it out. And I've just been so pleased to watch what's happening with the MLS. Uh, and, and, and now I got my eye on Atlanta, what's happening there. I mean, it, 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 to me, it is very rewarding to watch and see everything that's happening in the, in the league now. And I, I, we, take no, <laughs> we take no pride in authorship at all. I mean, we, I'm sure we had a little bit to do with the city getting to know the game, but what they've done now is miraculous. Well, it certainly is night and day. I, I actually do think that you're you're being a little uh, uh, under uh, nourishing in your in your in your commentary because I do think that you know there are a lot of um, pioneering efforts that uh, in the North American Soccer League in particular that that do resonate. I think it would be very interesting to see. I mean, like for example, the the ownership or the co ownership of uh, teams uh, across different leagues to the extent that they're allowed. I mean, obviously. In Atlanta, this you know, uh, with the Atlanta United franchise, right, having the the resources and the uh, and the shared facility uh, of the Falcons with the Blank family, um, you know, that's that there's significant advantages there. And you, in many respects, you guys were kind of a kind of the uh, uh, the beginnings of sort of uh, of that idea. And I think it's um, you know, I it would be very interesting, and I, I'd be curious to hear your take on this. Um, I do see in Major League Soccer quite a bit of fairly recently. Um, I wouldn't call it nostalgia, but but uh, memories and remembrances uh, to things that came beforehand. Obviously, you've got some teams in this league now that are actually the names of the teams that preceded them in the old North American Soccer League. Uh, not the case in Atlanta, but I do see a lot of heritage uh, being um, uh, uh, called back. And at some point, you know, after the novelty, I think, of the United franchise in Atlanta wears off, um, you got to think that with the rich history that you were even part of for, for the three years of the reincarnated Chiefs franchise, uh, you know, with the Apollos and the, the original Chiefs, uh, there's probably some 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 throwback kinds of things there that uh, probably will, I would hope, call you back to at least take a bow for some of those those pioneering things that maybe you don't think had too much effect, but but actually did. Well, I hope so. I mean, we, we, we tried our best. And uh, uh, yeah, I kept waiting for it in the, in the 80s, in the 90s, in the early twos. And I've and always been a fan. Ever since I uh, got into pro soccer, I mean, became a fan more every year. I was probably one of the few people watching the World Cup uh, in, in Charlotte back in the early 2000s. Uh, because, I mean, I just really began to love the game, and I've watched it ever since. Uh, and I think that maybe... Some of the some of the cities have uh, I don't I doubt if the old Atlanta Chiefs have been called back too much by the United people, but I'm not sure of that I'm just I'm I'm speaking that out of school because I don't know. I'd give it some time. I think I think they will, but I think this year they want to just get their name and and they seem to be doing quite well just with the uh, curiosity factor for for for. Uh, well, I'm proud of what they pull off. I mean, that's the city I worked in, and I'm I, when I saw those attendance figures, I was. Uh, I was really, uh, really, really happy about all that. And Arthur Blank, you know, the funny thing was the NFL had cross-ownership problems back in the day. And in the NFL, you could not own uh, two franchises. So Joe Robbie, of course, owned Dolphins, and uh, he could not own the Strikers. So the owner was really Elizabeth Robbie, his wife. Indeed. Uh, so back in the day, the, the business model wouldn't have worked because the NFL wouldn't allow it. 
Very interesting. All right. Well, before we let you go, before we get, before we let you go, Terry, um, I, and I, I don't want to sort of, uh, 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 speed through sort of the rest of, of your career, but uh, maybe you can give our audience a bit of a, a bit of a sense of how you wound up on a uh, quite successful nationally syndicated radio show uh, uh, years later and still. From well, that it, it was a, it was a whirlwind after the Chiefs were were over. I, I became the first head of TVF Sports. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it was a cable network. It was just going national and, and I brought NCAA football there and the NBA. And I say, I meet me and a group of people and that uh, parlayed that into an offer from the PGA tour, got, moved to Florida for seven years and ran the communications department and production company of the PGA tour from 84 to 91. And then uh, in 91 came to Charlotte. Uh, to be the president of Raycom uh, Management Group with Raycom Sports. And uh, I was lured to Charlotte uh, with a five-year deal. And uh, three three years into the five-year deal, I started to start my own company. And John Boy and Billy Big Show at that point in time was a, uh, was a uh, local uh, uh, radio show here in Charlotte. And they became a client of mine because they were, in, they were investigating syndication. And uh, I, they were a client of mine as to how they might syndicate the radio network because I knew television syndication, but I really didn't understand radio syndication that much, but it was applicable. So early on, I got involved with those guys and kind of was a part of them for, for, for a long time. And uh, I, I was a consultant with them for, I don't know, heck, about 15 or 20 years. And then about 10 years ago, they uh, they they we're looking for something else in the studio and I've always been close to the operation and I had my own company and, uh, it was doing okay, but I wasn't getting the ball out of the park necessarily. I had a lot of clients and uh, they came and made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So about 10 years ago, I decided to jump over and uh, work with them. And I'm basically the token Yankee uh, (laughs) on a Southern redneck radio program. And, uh, it's fun. I mean, I, I really enjoy it. It's, 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 uh, six shows a week, four hours a day into about 23 States. And, uh, I do some sports, I do some media stuff and I sit on set all the time and kind of just play with it the whole time and, and really enjoy myself. And I think it keeps you young too. I mean, obviously you've got a lot of a uh, great background and a lot of, uh, interesting experiences and, um, you know, I, that, that's a hell of a lot of fun. I mean, you know, I, I, I can't imagine, uh, uh, not having fun in the morning, although I'm sure the early wake up calls are, are not fun. Um, but, uh, it, it does sound like you're having a, a hell of a lot of, of a good time. And, um, look, I hope I didn't, uh, uh, tra- traumatize you with uh, having to uh, pull you back into your deep, dark, uh, sordid history with your North American soccer league travels. But, uh, if you're, uh, if your audience, uh, on the radio show, uh, uh, find out about this sort of uh, a deep, dark past of yours. Uh, I apologize, but hopefully maybe a few will be enlightened by uh, some of the, the fun and interesting and uh, I think uh, important things that, uh, that you did back in the 70s with the old NASL. The running joke uh, with me on radio for my soccer background is, is a line that I've used a lot of times saying that in Atlanta, uh, we took out the turnstiles and put in a guest book. And uh, kind of relate how we did there, but I wouldn't be anywhere near where I am today had I not gotten that first break in soccer. I mean, the Rochester Lancers gave me my first job in pro sports 
And I wouldn't be anywhere near where I am today had I not started in North American Soccer League, and I thank the Lord that I was able to get there. That's fantastic. Well, Terry Hansen, I can't thank you enough for being part of our little uh, meandering of a podcast as we try to explore the things and the teams and the leagues uh, that, for whatever reason, don't exist anymore. And, and I think you've given uh, ample evidence as to why those stories and those uh, those travails are important and uh, and the legacy that uh, that they've uh, that that are still, frankly, they're still the, the legacy that's still unfolding. Um, thank you very much. Well, I look Hope your listeners enjoyed uh, listening as much as I enjoyed doing it. Oh, I appreciate it very much, Terry, uh, and uh, look forward to uh, staying connected in uh, in the months and years to come. Thank you very much, Terry Hanson. Okay, friends, see you. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay, there it is. There's our chat with uh, Terry Hanson. Thank you, Terry, uh, for allowing us to drag you back into the uh, mid 1970s and early 1980s to remember, perhaps forcibly against your will, uh, some of your uh, early days in professional sports with the North American Soccer Leagues, Rochester Lancers, Washington Diplomats, and Atlanta Chiefs. Um, As you know, Terry can be heard uh, each and every weekday morning uh, on the big show with John Boy and Billy on uh, tons of stations all across the Southeast and the Midwest, uh, including 105.9 The Rock in Nashville uh, and the flagship station for the show, 99.7 The Fox. Uh, in Charlotte. Uh, That is the big show with John Boy and Billy. Give Terry a listen. Uh, Hell, give him a phone call during the show and uh, tell him you heard him here on the podcast and and you thought the podcast and he were tremendous. Shall you? Shall we? Okay. Thank you for doing so. Uh, In addition to that, we encourage you to uh, please follow us on social media. We love hearing your tweets, your comments, uh, mostly positive, please, uh, at Good Seats Still. That's on Twitter, at Good Seats Still. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available, of course. Uh, you'll find us on uh, Facebook. We have a page called Good Seats Still Available uh, as well. And uh, of course, please indeed go to GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. That is the website to end all websites uh, with relation to this show. If you missed an episode, uh, you want to download something, you want to find a copy of a book uh, or a video or whatever that we've referenced here on the show, that is the place to do it. You will find it uh and much uh, uh, more uh, to come uh, on that there website. That's uh, good seats. It's still available.com. Okay, enough uh, babbling for this week. We thank you for listening. Uh, keep those cards and letters coming, as they say. Please tell your friends if you like the show, and uh, we'll see you uh, very soon on our next episode. Thank you for listening. Take care, everybody. <laughs>